3: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of a 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins. Thank you for joining us today. I am feeling much better. I've been sick over the past couple episodes. Now I'm feeling good. Got rid of the summer cold allergy bullshit that was going around. So I am my less nasally self now. The guest for today is uh, one that I'm particularly excited about and I'll tell you why in a minute. Sam McFeeders, the vocalist for Born Against, Wrangler Brutes, and he's also a very prolific writer as well. So uh, more on him in a minute. Propertyofzach.com. Great website. They're our partners. We love working with them. I, I can't say anything more about them because they're so great, but I will. Go there for all the latest news, reviews, features, whatever you want in independent music, go there and you'll probably be able to find it. So check it out. We love them. They love us, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, go visit our website, 100wordspodcast.com, where you can find random stuff that I find interesting online, in between shows. And uh, yeah, that way you can be constantly entertained because after all, we are in a culture that you need to have millions and millions of distractions. And I want to be one of those distractions. And if you're feeling ever so kind, go to the iTunes store. Give us a review drop some stars, get some nice sentences together, and then you can post it and it'll make us look cooler in iTunes. So I appreciate if you do do that and a shout out to our editor, Tom Richfield. He's been doing a great job and continues to kill it for the show. So, thank you, Tom. Let's talk about something else before we dive into the interview. I don't know why this has been on my mind, but I've had a note to talk about this for a long time. But there's a very influential author in my own life. And I think anybody who is interested in technology and culture would find his work very appealing and revealing. Uh, His name is Neil Postman. The book that you should check out is called Technopoly. It's, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was published, but I want to say it was right as the internet started to take shape. So late 80s, early 90s. And he wrote about the way that we interact with technology. And this is, you know, way before social networks and Twitter and Facebook and everything else. The question you always have to ask yourself when you incorporate a new piece of technology into your life, whatever it may be, it can be something as simple as like, you know, a blender, <laughs> um, or something as you know uh, complex as our smartphones. What do we give up, and is what we're giving up worth the trade-off? Um, and so that's a question I constantly ask myself because uh, I've become obsessed with technology over the past, I don't know, seven to eight years. And I always keep that in the back of my mind with whatever else I'm doing, am I forgetting something? Am I not thinking about the impacts that it has on my life with whatever new gadget thing that I'm incorporating? But he passed away late 90s. I want to say 97. But uh, it was pretty incredible because I wrote him a letter. He didn't write me a letter. He actually emailed me which I was shocked at because I thought he might have problems with email. He wrote me back, and I still have that. Le- I still have that email printed out, and I thought it was very kind of him to do that. I got introduced to this dude via a band called Buried Inside. Uh, they were on Relapse Records. Great band if you are a fan of like ISIS, any sort of progressive metal, post metal, whatever lame genre you want to put on it. The vocalist introduced me to this guy, and a lot of one of their records. Uh, pulls some of his themes out and uses it throughout the record. Uh, the record's called Chrono Class, by the way. Basically, all I'm trying to do is give you a recommendation because we are at this age, this apex of technology, and like how I'm talking to you right now, this is incredible. But am I forsaking having this person to person? conversation because sometimes i have these conversations over skype or over the telephone and um you know it's a bummer that i have to do that but for the sake of either my schedule or the person i'm interviewing their schedule that's sometimes just how it works so anyways just food for thought sam mcfeeters in a similar fashion i wrote him a letter because he puts up some barriers for people to get in contact with him. In the age of internet and Facebook messaging and email, it's very easy to get in contact with people. And so uh, I saw this and I was like, you know, I've always wanted to interview him, but you know, I don't know him. I don't know any of my friends that have direct contact with him. So I was like, I'm just going to write him a letter. He doesn't live far from me, wrote me back, like emailed me. And I even... (laughs) I even put a self-addressed stamp envelope in there, and he, when he wrote me an email, he said, "I figured this was quicker. I'm sorry to have wasted your stamp. I thought that was very charming. I was like, oh, okay, because you know, I figured since he was writing, I was writing a letter to him, that he may want to write a letter back. So we scheduled a time to talk." I was very nervous about this one because for anybody that doesn't know, I mean, Born Against is a very seminal, legendary band in the punk and hardcore movement. Um, they ruffled a lot of feathers. They created some amazing music. For yeah, so go back in the history books. In you know, you can Google Born Against, and you'll be able to find some great stuff. So yeah, I was a little nervous walking into this because I didn't know how he was as a person. If he was going to be some you know bitter old dude and not wanting to kind of walk through his life, because sometimes people don't want that. <laughs> And that's what I'm trying to accomplish here. So, but Sam was amazing. Very gracious to answer all of the questions that I, you know, tried to spin in some original sense, but it was really good. Um, And I was very, very proud of this interview. And with that being said, enjoy it. And I'll talk to you afterwards. Okay. feeling this i like this
4: the 44 cent barrier yes
3: (laughs) it is i like that is that how you view that
4: yeah more or less that was one of the biggest quality of life decisions i ever made was ending any way for anyone to reach me publicly except by mail yeah i I used to get a lot of drunk emails from fans of bands i've been in and all that stopped no one sends drunk letters
3: no (laughs) there's way too many steps to complete that there's this uh, cultural critic, like this, and honestly, he was the last letter that I wrote to. It's this guy named Neil Postman. He used the same sort of idea where it was like, oh, if you want any sort of correspondence, you have to write, and so I did, and he wrote back, and it was like, you know, when you have that sort of you know hand to hand communication, it's just like, oh, it's brilliant, it's so nice.
4: I think most people uh, on the younger generation are just baffled and angered by it. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it made my life a lot better. <laughs> that's good. Well, I'm
3: glad. I mean, I'm I'm 32 years old. I definitely got introduced to you and via Born Against. Like, would you say that's like your most common entry point where people are like, "Oh yeah, I know you because of that."
4: <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes.
3: And so I definitely remember, uh, you know, getting Rebel Sound of Shit and Failure. It was one of those things. That's like I would say it was like 14 or 15 years old, and I just started to understand that there was a political nature into what bands were doing because prior to that it was like my only exposure was like rage against the machine and so between you guys and Propagandi, which is uh, i'm sure not a direct comparison uh, that you've maybe uh, ever correlated in your own head but once that kind of opened my head where i was like oh wow this is this is meaningful to someone that is a little bit older than me, and was doing this you know, before uh, my proverbial time, because this was like the mid- '90s. Your most common entry point was obviously, born against for people who are familiar with your work. The attraction to be be in a band. Where did that come from?
4: Uh, I had been going to shows for a long time. I grew up in upstate New York mm-hmm. uh, in Albany had done everything else that I could do, did a lot of fanzine setup shows, um, very briefly, had a radio show, did all the stuff that I could do. and I always assumed that there's no way I could ever be in a band because I had a weird medical condition that's actually come back recently. Uh, optical migraines. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. it's no. It's where you have migraines, but you don't get the headaches so
3: how does it manifest itself
4: you get flashing lights so uh i could be out driving or or shopping and i'll see a little light in the center of my vision and i'll know what's going on and then everything has to stop and i just go sit in the car or if i'm at home i go sit on the couch precisely a half hour of just bright flashing lights i'm functionally blind and uh and then it goes away. For most people, 95% of the people who get these, they know that's their signal. Batten down the hatches, and they're going to get a full-blown mm-hmm. migraine headache and the rest of the day or the next couple of days are shot. I don't get the headaches. I just get the flashing lights. There are different symptoms. You can get these weird spells where you can't speak right. Uh, your motor coordination can be off. I've only had a little tiny bit of that, mostly just the lights. But I assumed from that that I'd never be able to be in a band. I had that a lot when I was in my early teens. hmm And then I started going to shows when I was 15, 16. That went on for a long time. That was just this feeling of God. It's a real shame involved in all this this other stuff. But I I could never actually sing in a band. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was friends with all the guys in the band Life's Blood. And when that band fell apart, I said, well, uh, let's just. I go to the practice space. I'll do a set, and we'll see what happens. In the worst case scenario, you'll have to take me in the hospital of some weird seizure. It'll be a <laughs> funny story for everyone, right? Um, and then I did it, and nothing happened.
3: Did that conversation going into the practice? You you basically were like, "All right, guys, there there's a strong possibility that some weird shit's going to happen with me."
4: It was just like a little mild preparation conversation. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, I was definitely nervous, and i have been nervous for the first couple shows. That you, you get the feeling where you can't entirely. Uh, trust yourself physically like you might have a seizure or something even though seizures are not part of this
3: right i identify with that because i i mean i i sang for bands for years but i had and i, and I still do i have asthma Not the most prudent choice for me to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be the lead screamer for my band. So, yeah, I know that feeling. Like, fortunately, you know, I've been able to, you know, medicate myself to where it's like those asthma attacks are few and far between. But I I can understand where you're coming from, where it's just like, yeah, I trust my body, but some weird shit may happen.
4: How does that work? Um, I mean, have you had an asthma attack?
3: Mid set. I no. I have never. Fortunately, I've never endured that. But I've definitely had um a- after you play where it's like you know I I kind of have to like decompress and like sort of run outside immediately and just be able to like collect myself. There are ways that I've been able to self medicate without actually like taking my emergency inhaler or whatever. So just mm. to just to like calm down. And, yeah. And then be able to sort of move past it. But there's definitely times I've had asthma attacks. After a show, and I've had to use, you know, inhalers and stuff. Never to the point where it was a, a hospital visit, but right. I can empathize with your feeling of not being really ready for where that could take you. You said you started to get into punk and hardcore, whatever you like to call it. What was your, you know, what was your entry point? Like, who do, who showed it to you? Did you have brothers and sisters, and what was your sort of family structure like growing up?
4: No, I was the only child growing up. I think if you were just a kid in the mid '80s, it would be very hard to not have that intersect your life at some point. Um, I just feel like I picked it up by osmosis. In ninth grade, I went to school, um, this really crazy hippie school in Vermont. So it was a a boarding school. Boarding uh, in the loosest term. We we lived out in the woods in this weird barn. It was very strange. Uh, Take a a lot of context. And one of the kids there, two of the kids there were in the Dead Kennedys. Oh, okay. I went through a long period, what well, feels long because it's my childhood, but only a couple of months, two, three months, where I was violently opposed to the Dead Kennedys. And I tried to convince them that they'd been duped because this band were actually Nazis because they had the word Nazi in a song. <laughs> and, you know, just like the, my logic centers were a little off. Well, you were, then,
3: you were probably just being contrarian to be contrarian.
4: Yeah, it was it was, I was 14. It was a confusing time.
2: <laughs> like, sure.
4: Uh, and then eventually got into them. There were some local Vermont hardcore bands, and so by the time I went back down to Albany to start a different school in 10th grade, I already knew I knew all the main bands, um, and a lot of my friends there were already plugged into that pretty natural progression. Although I remember going to my first show, it was really, it was really, really loud. I just wasn't... It was disorienting how loud it was. Yeah, and still to this day, I, I wear earplugs at anything. I never stop wearing earplugs. I'm the only one, probably my age, who doesn't have... Some hearing problems.
3: Uh, whether or not that was foresight, that was just prudent move for you because, yeah, people lose their hearing in wh- what we've done over the years.
4: Yeah, you know, I was never able to sing without earplugs. It was the weirdest thing. I only had a couple of oh. shows where they fell out, and um, it was an instant through line back to that first show of just um, incredible disorientation, um, extremely unpleasant. Like the curtain had been pulled back, mm-hmm. uh, and this horrible thing I was actually involved in. Closer to being in the engine room of a giant ship or something than actual fun.
3: Yeah, you needed you needed some buffer between that and those earplugs were obviously the main resistance for that. That's interesting. So, what did your uh, what did your parents do as you were growing up? Like for a profession?
4: Uh, my dad was a journalist at the time. Uh, my mom's an artist, still is an artist. They were as supportive, I think, as parents should be of someone getting into hardcore punk. I think they probably figured out pretty quick that I was all the straight edge stuff was keeping me out of a whole, uh,
3: yeah. Bad influence. Sure.
4: Teenager done that. I could have fallen into. And they're probably happy with that. I mean, I was, I was a a shitty kid as a teenager. A lot of times I was a jerk. Didn't need, um, any drugs to, (laughs) to go in that direction. So, I mean, we had a normal relationship. I get along with him great now. Uh, things got a little tense a couple times, but I don't think they had any problems with the shows I was going through. And the scene in Albany was very different from most scenes in America in the 80s. It was really tame. I didn't really have a full concept of the fact that there were fights at shows for years. I had to move to New York huh. uh, for college to really realize that that was actually a thing. Yeah. Everyone was very tight-knit. I mean, there was a a scene phone list of just hey here's everyone's phone number because we're all friends yeah Um,
3: i think that sentiment rings true for most (laughs) and i'm going to use a music industry term here for most quote unquote b markets you have your towns that are large enough to obviously be able to sustain some level of culture but not large enough in the way that you're saying that outside influences like violence could really perpetuate because everyone would completely squash it and be like, knock it the fuck off. Like this is what we have up here.
4: Maybe. I don't know. I've I've seen some small town places where they definitely had serious problems. We would all go to Chuck E. Cheese after the shows. We'd play Duck Duck Goose on people's lawns. It was this really uh it was nice. I'm really glad that I had this experience. In hindsight it seems really <laughs> intentionally hokey and almost kind of manufactured. And I think it was just the various people who were involved, it was just luck of the draw that uh yeah. in those in those couple of years we were all Really lucky. The same way that when I went to high school, I got a huge amount out of the school I was at, just because of the of the people I was involved with. If I had been a year later or a year earlier, I wouldn't have gotten anything out of it like what I did get out of it.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Albany's a weird place in general.
3: Yeah, it is one of those cities where it's like it's, it's it feels good, you know. I I, I I have no other better way to explain it other than just like are probably still remnants for what you were used to back then that still exists in some fashion now where it's like oh yeah this is a nice city to get into music
4: yeah uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm baffled by albany i haven't been there in 10 years
3: sure um, sure your formative years in high school so like you said you were you know kind of a little shit and you did you care about school
4: i started the first five years i went to this really really insane hippie school far more insane than the one ninth grade that would be very very hard to <laughs> fully describe but a place that um, where there was there were just problems, uh, full on a no rules situation. Okay, I was there for five years. Did two years in a very nice, sedate suburban uh, public school. One year at Hackett, which at the time but maybe still is, was pretty notorious. Very tough inner city junior high. Did a year in military school, then a year at the hippie school up in Vermont. In high school, for the last three years, I was at uh, a really nice Christian prep school in Albany. And that school uh, was where I met a lot of the people that really had a huge influence on me. And I didn't go into it feeling like I was someone who uh, applied myself much. But I definitely my, my horizons broadened while I was there. So I wound up reading a lot more. In general, my mind opened up at that place a lot. Um,
3: you were seeing the world beyond what was just kind of right in front of you. Yeah, yeah. The way that you're describing all of your schooling experiences, and this is coming from my own perspective. It's like my mom was a, is a high school English teacher and grown up around the schooling system beyond just the one I experienced. You experienced the fucking gamut from one end yeah. y- to another end. Was that really difficult for you to keep shifting these completely alternate universes? Uh,
4: yeah, at the time. I'm really glad I had the experience. Now I don't know anyone else had no. that wider range. Of-
3: right, right.
4: Almost everyone I know had a bad time in high school, or they look back at high school, maybe everyone has some fondness, or they have some little corner of high school. Uh, And even when I was in Born Against, I fell into that pattern, because that's how everyone else would talk about how horrible high school was. Born Against even has a song about how bad high school was, um, based mostly off of Adam's experiences. I had a blast in high school, Uh, not just because of my friends, but because I, I felt my mind jumped a step uh, and I was able to start processing things more. I, I mean, I, I tell there's a lot of parts of my childhood I guess that seem weird now, and I tell people about them, and they have a uh, an <laughs> odd reaction. And then I think, oh yeah, I guess
3: I guess that is weird. Yeah, I
4: guess that was some weird stuff. It feels to me like everyone in their life has just things in their childhood they think back on years later. Like I don't know, you're in your 20s, and and then you realize like oh, I, I I guess I was kidnapped that once. I never thought about that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or stuff like, oh, wow, yeah, that kid died. That's the weirdest thing. I totally forgot about that. And that's, that's what my childhood feels like. But there are some parts that are strange. I had all those schooling experiences. I wrote a little bit about this. I wrote a piece in The Fader about uh, being a published author at 12. Right, right. It was an odd experience. And then also that came out of the, the first school that I went to in Albany, the crazy hippie school. Mm-hmm. And the person I wrote the book with was a friend of mine who was a lot older than me. And then also later, he started dating my mom and has now been married to my mom for, I think, 25 years at this point. <laughs> wow. Um, and that's just, I don't think twice about that story at all. And then every now and then I'll, you know, retell it. People will say, oh, that's kind of unusual. And say, I say, I guess it
5: yeah. was. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're sitting here. It's like June. And you're like, where has the time gone? And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, I have no idea. I got to, like, accomplish all these other things. Take a moment. Focus on the things that obviously, for one, matter to you. But for two, look back. Be like, what have I done well? What have I done not so well? And maybe I can, you know, ask some friends and family for some help. But where I have always gone to in regards to figuring out what I can do better, therapy. Therapy is an incredible tool at your arsenal that you can dip into. I've done it for my marriage. I've done it for myself personally. And I'm a huge advocate for what therapy can do for you because it is a third party that's able to look at what you can do to improve your life and be a person to help you along in your journey. And so I think if you were thinking and visit betterhelp.com slash ray today to get ten percent off of your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash ray.
0: High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every 4 hours. Only at highfivecasino.com.
1: High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at high the number 5 casino
2: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
3: The environment that you're raised in is, you know, it is what it is. Like, obviously, you can't change it because you are a product of that. But all those experiences, just seem very commonplace until you have the proper context to reflect upon it then you're you're, like you said you're like oh yeah that is strange yeah
4: (laughs) yeah
3: as you started to transition into you know the idea of wanting to play in a band like once you once you started to go to shows and obviously that was your experience that was like what you wanted to do like you wanted to sing for a band you felt that passionate about it
4: yeah but i I think that's that's honestly think back on uh, all your friends i would bet that the majority of your friends are in bands. The majority of my friends have been in bands. Everyone I know has been in bands. That's, that's like a template for what people do, the same way that people used to join the military or the merchant marines or
5: mm-hmm.
4: uh, middle of the country, they become farmers. Right. I mean, that's, that is just what one does. And it wasn't so much that i i felt a particular calling or anything it was just that oh it would be nice for me to do this thing that everybody else i know is doing and also i don't play any instruments therefore my only choice to be a singer right <laughs> And a singer in quotes because I can't hold a note. A, a a guy with a microphone who screams.
3: The the conductor of said band. <laughs>
4: yeah.
3: A majority of your touring years was like kind of late '80s, early '90s, it, it, and I'm addressing obviously Born Against in particular. Toured with you know Men's Recovery Project and Wrangler Brutes and stuff like that because each of those uh, were obviously completely different experiences. The touring life changed so much over those years um i mean especially the jump from men's recovery project to wrangler brutes do you do you look back wistfully on the born against years of touring or do you look back on the the, you know the touring you did with wrangler brutes where it's like okay like this is maybe easier or better to use those terms lightly
4: um i look back on all those tours Regret's not the right word, but uh, (laughs) I I look back on Born Against Tours and I get really scared for myself because we were, we willingly placed ourselves uh, in a lot of dangerous situations. And the fact that almost none of those panned out danger-wise was, again, just luck. There were a lot of, a lot of things where we probably should have gotten beaten up and because of you know, one factor we didn't. Someone was late to the beating or right. our friends showed up. Uh, and it just is so dumb. It's so pointless to expend that much effort to take stances on things that um, are manufactured concepts. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure that you're familiar with uh, all the less sane parts of the Born Against experience. Of um, course. But, well, but I mean, there there are a bunch. And one of, the, one of the things that's weird to me about that band now is um, mostly Born Against has been has benefited from time Mm -hmm. uh our recorded output doesn't contain the worst parts of what that band did um but just as people nobody was thinking properly all the time there were there were gaps we went nuts over barcodes but barcodes isn't who cares that's not (laughs) that's not a real thing you know and that's a very very serious thing on par with Uh, if you had a swastika on your record it would be the same thing as if you had a barcode and that doesn't make sense to me now um and so when i look back on that experience there there there's a lot of cringing just oh i i did that or or ouch why you know don't like i could see myself like don't young man don't do that uh versus (laughs) other other band experiences especially wrangler brutes just seem like i don't know it just seems like wasted time it makes me sad that it's a waste of resources. In a way. I don't mean the band itself. I mean, being on tour, um, right. we were our big goal, which we actually more or less pulled off, which was to always be a, a good band live. Mm-hmm. That's still, I guess you could say, in, in that context, that's a, a waddable goal, maybe, because Born Again certainly didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> that, that's still... that's so energy intensive and so sort of time intensive. You know, you only realize later like this is it. There's there's only so much lifespan you get and you can spend it doing something real in so many different directions or you can spend it driving from South Dakota to North Dakota and then playing a show in North Dakota to 28 confused people uh, and have a teenage Nirvana band open for you, and maybe that's kind of funny, but not really worth the drive. Funny, you know?
3: Right, not really, not really worth the uh, you know three weeks of touring you've done up to that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, bands in general are such a just a wasteful concept on so many levels. I, I get why I was in bands, and I get. Why other people are in bands? I don't look back on myself as you know st- stupid. It wasn't a stupid decision, and I certainly don't look down on anyone who's in bands now. Right, but at the same time, overlaid on top of that, it's it's a bizarre concept to me. It doesn't bands don't really make sense. And that aspect of it, the, the wastefulness, and I don't even just mean like the carbon footprint or, or whatever. I just mean time in terms of human labor. It's so, very strange to me that I did that for so long.
3: Right. Well, the most, the most non-renewable resource of all, which is time. And that's obviously something that you feel yeah. like you've, during those years, you feel like you have a never-ending supply of it. But then when you actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you actually get away from it, it's like, oh, yeah, no, that, maybe, maybe that wasn't the, most, uh, the best use of my time from that perspective.
4: Yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in vans. I mean, I, I tried so hard uh, throughout all my touring. So from 1990 through 2004, I tried really hard in every form of transportation to just make use of that time and to read. And I just was never able to do it. You're at the mercy of whatever tape someone is playing, uh, whatever amoebic CD they decide to put on. Um, even there were a couple tours I went on into Japan. I thought, oh, this is great. I have this 10 hour flight each way I can get some reading in. There was one trip to Japan. Japan, a flight in 2002, where I brought hold on, I'm gonna pull this out. How many <laughs> fucking pages is this? Uh, a History of Israel from the Rise of Zionism to Our Time. This book, which I did wind up reading years uh, later, it is um, 1150 pages long. It's the size of a phone book. Yeah, I bought this thing that I'm holding, I'm holding it with two hands right now because it's big. Mm-hmm. I brought it in my bag to Japan thinking. What, oh. like, I'm, I'm that kind of person. Like, oh, some light reading. I'll, I'll knock th- yeah, I'll knock this out. Yeah. And then maybe, like, the, the stewardess will come by and, like, oh, I, I see your, that, that's quite a book, you know? And, <laughs> like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why would I do that, you know? And also, on that flight, I remember very specifically, I watched Men in Black two, four <laughs> times. And then I went to sleep, and I woke myself up snoring, and that—that was the entire experience. Trying really hard to make that work, and never getting it, and being confused. Why? Why won't this work? The answer now is because it's—it's a flawed system. You can't do that and get out of it the time that you're putting into it
3: really glad you're talking about this i distinctively have noticed in my years of being in part of this culture or whatever you definitely have your people in the band who are like you know the sort of whatever the business guy the guy that you know settles at the end of the shows or whatever and that's the person you know it sounds like yourself who it's like uh, there's a certain level of ambition yeah you want to do these things and you want to accomplish whatever you know uh, small goals you may have and then you obviously you have your people that play in bands who are just like Oh, dude, I just love to jam or whatever, you know, um, yeah. and those are the people who obviously I don't think have those and no slight against them. They just don't have those uh, thoughts. That, everything that you're talking about, they don't have those thoughts. It's like well, man, what,
4: what they cool. have is motive. And if if you find yourself without motive, that can be a really grim thing. If you're in a parking lot in Iowa and suddenly you have that realization, as many people in bands on tour have had where. You're standing there and you think, why, why am I doing this? There's no pay involved. Um, in fact, I'm actually losing work time and I have to figure out some way to pay my rent on my apartment back home. What's my motive for doing this? And at least if you are a musician, if you play an instrument, that goes a long way. Uh, I, at least this is practice. I'm learning how to do these songs live. I'm learning how to be in a band There are all these avenues that are open for you that aren't open for a frontman. There's no listing on Craigslist for grown men who scream. That's not a job description. Um, I I can't get any work based on being able to strike good poses in front of a microphone. Um, I wasn't building anything, you know, it was just an act, an artistic act that had no endpoint. And that, I think that can get really scary really quick
3: the trope that happens when as people grow older where it's like you know you turn into the old man get off my lawn sort of scenario but the the way that you speak about it it's like it's in reverence but the reverence is not without perspective i guess and that's like that's nice that's refreshing for me to hear personally because obviously it's like once you hit like 25 and are expected to sort of cash out of this world you know there are certain people that that don't do that and still want to create art in various capacities not turn into that you know old person it's like Oh the fucking kids and this is stupid yeah. and blah blah blah. But so that's good. Jesus
4: Jesus dude. Try being a forty four year old man. That that voice is always it's like a drumbeat in my head. That old the old feel it, the the ossification uh that just happens where um there where I live, so I live in Pomona, California now. There's a club. It's a mile away from my house. And because of the very particular layout of where my house is at the end of the street, acoustically, I can hear what's happening at this club, which is a mile away. I mean, I can hear what people are saying on stage. So this every Friday and Saturday night. If you go next door to my house... 25 feet in either direction you can't hear it it's just physically where my house is located and i'll feel that thing on fridays and saturday nights i'm just saturated with hate for these people in their bands on stage at this club and i feel like a, a character i feel like the grinch you know i'm just up here in my cave and it's dark in my house and i'm just i'm just wringing my hands and and uh you know like i got my head tilted forward my eyebrows are all curled down and it's that it's that thing it's that old man pole, and It's nice being conscious of that. I would like to not wind up like that. It's a hard lens through which to view one's past, especially my past.
3: Yeah. Um, It it strikes me as even more funny. The fact it's still so well-documented in regards to like, oh yeah, born again. It's like, they just, you know, they started shit. It's like, dude, have you, have you watched that YouTube video of them debating sick of it all? Or not YouTube video, but the, the radio interview. And it's like, that still exists. And it's like, that happened so long ago. Like you said, it, it gets perpetuated because obviously people revel in the idea of conflict and how interesting that is.
4: Yeah, uh, that's the internet. I mean, everything's, anyone's past is going to get conflated with their present. All you can do is add to your eternal present online. One of the things that's weird to me about Born Against Now, again, this is... Almost 20 years after we broke up, the degree to which the band is a blank canvas for the listener,
1: mm-hmm. and maybe
4: that's not quite the precise analogy, maybe the degree to which the band is an inkblot test. A lot of people who pay attention to that band see what they want to in that band. Um, so, for example, The Born Against is remembered now as this very strident left wing punk band in the vein of of uh, all the 1990s politically conscious subcultures some of which the band was a big influence on when really what adam and i wanted to be was a wackadoo band from the 1980s <laughs> and our priority was making people angry which means making everyone angry mm. and we loved making fun of leftists um, the band had two songs directly attacking people on the left One of which, uh, the song I Am an Idiot, which is on the split with UOA, Mm -hmm. clearly mocked Occupy Wall Street 18 years before Occupy Wall Street existed. (laughs) Right. Strange to me. I've read a fair amount of stuff online where um, people assume that whatever their very specific isolated political take is that that's something that A, Born Against would have approved of and B, I... You know, by the by, the transitive property. I myself would approve of because I am currently the singer of Born Against. Right. Um, <laughs> right. It's what's weird to me now is that everyone who likes Born Against thinks that they were in on the joke, but but no one was in on the joke. Oh sure. Uh, we we went after everyone, including ourselves. A mess and the bad kind of mess, the one that that starts with the audience chuckling and ends with people walking out the door feeling disrespected and and abused. And some of that aesthetic was borrowed from the early 80s hardcore bands that we admired. But some of it was just an expression of, honestly, mental illness. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of it, mine. I had a lot of problems when I was in that band. Um, Other people in the band were struggling with their own issues. And so it's just, it's strange to me. Again, I'm happy that the band has mostly benefited from time. Um, Far more people like that band than are upset by the worst stuff that we did. And most of the worst stuff we did is gone. It's been vaporized. It never made it onto the internet. I don't
1: right. really know
4: how that happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. And for the time being, I'm not going to draw attention to it. Although if I can find an interesting way to write about it, I probably will eventually. But it's weird to me. All the people who like it feel that, that they have this, um, this fellowship with the band when that's not really openly that's not what the band's aesthetic was if, right if there was a time machine and someone a person in their 20s now went back and <clears throat> was able to go back in time 22 years and see the band the odds are at best 50 50 that that any of us would have been nice to that person it's not like they would go to one of these shows and and revel all of us in the the majesty of whatever it was we were celebrating they would go and be abused and mocked and humiliated by us and that was the point of what we were doing you know again that's that's the nature of mental illness like it was not a, a pleasant experience to be in and often i don't think it was a pleasant experience to like witness, witness. Yeah. yeah
3: completely leads into the idea of why would you guys reunite and play another show because like you said it's not like you would try to recreate that experience if you were to do something like that why would you even do that in the first place because that isn't even necessarily the point of why you did the band in the first place.
4: Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's always a strange thing. Like, I mean, I, I haven't read tons of clamor for people wanting to get born against together, but I read a little bit. Yeah. And whenever I see them, I'm just like, really? Like, you, you would want that? You would want to see flabby 44-year-old man try to recreate emotions that make no sense to him anymore to do a lot of things that were directly influenced by profound mental illness Right. Like why why would that be fun? You know?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think people ever reflect on the idea of I guess context. Uh, they just think that it's like, oh, well because I would be able to see this live, like that would be meaningful.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, whether or not that would actually be something that's quantifiably good, that's a whole that's that's almost irrelevant when you talk about reunions. <laughs>
4: Yeah, context is such a weird thing now. It's, yeah, it's the strangest thing, that, that, that shift. I have a friend who goes to a lot of hardcore shows now, and she was over here, a um, closer friend with my wife, but I'm friends with her too, and she came over, and I was taking out the trash or something, and, and I, I saw she had a negative approach sticker on the back of her car, and I came in, and I, wow, you actually literally have a negative approach sticker on the back of your car. I'm, that's a very good band. I don't even know why I mentioned it. I don't know. Uh, right. She said, yeah, I'm, I'm really bummed I didn't get to see them. And I said, oh, me too. You know, for me, meaning like, (laughs) I'm bummed that I was born five years too late. I really would have liked to have seen them. And I realized what she meant was, I'm bummed I didn't get to see them when they played Pomona. They're both equally valid thoughts, but it's strange to me that it didn't... It took a jump for me to figure out the way that she meant it, you know, (laughs) which was completely different from the way that I meant it. And I just... It's strange to me that I, I could see people enjoying seeing negative approach now, but personally just for myself, I can't imagine anything less fun. And that's also when this spurt of band reunions really kicked in four years ago, less than five years ago from, yes. uh, really went into overdrive. I remember saying, listen, if negative approach comes back, maybe I would sit seeing them. <laughs> My bluff was called. They played, I don't know, a mile from, they probably played in that fucking club down the street. Yeah. So I don't know that, that was a, an odd moment for me. And, uh, I, I don't look down I have tons of my most of my friends from peers is a weird word but all the bands that were part of the crowd that Born Against was part of have reunited and I don't begrudge them any of that I just I can't imagine wanting to do that I,
3: you know, <laughs> right uh, right right you never made a living off of music, like you like you said. It's like you're you know making rent when you came home from tour was.
4: Uh, well, with one exception, I did uh, for a while. Vermiform made enough money. I mean, that was my job for for years, uh, and I just lived very cheaply, especially in Richmond. When I moved to Richmond, uh-huh. Virginia, in '93, when Born Against was over, my rent was ninety five dollars a month. Um, so it was maybe not five years, but I, w- I went for a while where that that was my occupation. So in a way, I was making money off off music. Um,
3: right. You were in the industry rather no. than a participant That's in f- <laughs> the other... most rung. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours only at High Five Casino.com.
1: High 5casino is a social casino no purchase necessary void were prohibited play responsibly terms and conditions apply see website for details at high the number 5casino.com 5casino
2: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect.
3: me being from southern or mostly raised in southern california and obviously seeing labels like ebullition and vermiform like once those things like once those things came into my purview and understanding the idea of like that takes no effort to put together like obviously it takes financial resources and you know sweat equity and all those things that you know you don't consider those labels and what you did obviously made those things you know a little more tangible for people to kind of like be able to pull down and understand that like oh yeah like Mm -hmm. I can just put this out on my own. It can hopefully be able to, like you said, sustain you as long as you're comfortable with like, Oh yeah, I'm just above the poverty line.
4: Yeah. It's uh, doing a record label has an element of a self-inflicted pyramid scheme on it, because if you're doing one, that's not totally snidey whiplash style, you're going to pay people royalties on it, which means that for every dollar you generate, um, a certain hard to determine proportion has to go right back out the door to the artists. Uh, and I was able to do that for a long time, but when the company folded, not all the payments got made. There were some people who were left holding the bag. There was nobody who, did, who got nothing. Everybody was paid three-quarters of the way through that company. But it's, it's a shitty business model, just um, aside from what the business is. Any money you get is not ever entirely yours. Right. Uh, and, a, and a lot, most of the labels that I knew from that period found a very elegant way around that problem, which was to just not pay royalties. That's not always a bad way to do things if you're doing really small pressings of stuff or if you're really good about paying people in merchandise. The problem is once you start paying royalties, once you make that first payment, then you're locked in. No one's going to forget that. Um, I've had labels since that owe me tiny little payments, and uh, you know, if I need $100, bucks, i am going to remember that, hey, maybe they owe me 40 bucks, and I need to get that from them. Right. Yeah, as, as a way to, to do a business, it's, it's not good.
3: And so, like I said, in the context of, you know, you uh, making a living off of the label for a while, you know, as, as that started to become less apparent that you could do that, did you immediately go back to the idea of like, okay, I, I like to write, I want to see if I can make this into a thing for myself?
4: The, the progression on that was kind of convoluted. I had a lot of odd jobs and then also full-time jobs sometimes while I was doing the label. Uh, I... It never occurred to me when I was doing columns, like I would do columns for Punk Planet and get paid 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. That transition was something that was really alien and strange to me, and I had no idea what I could write about. You know what? I never thought about that, but there's a parallel there, which is that when I very first started doing fanzines, the first fanzine I did in Albany, so from 85 to 86, I had several, several sessions of working on the fanzine with my fanzine partner, Jason. And we tried to figure out what we would write in this fanzine. It was mostly art and just cartoons and stuff. And I remember thinking, like, what? Why would? What would you write in a fanzine? Like, what is there to say? That it just seemed like a very alien concept. And I think that's how it was ten years later. Well, no, no, uh, yeah, two thousand three, two thousand four, where I just wasn't like, what. Okay, I could write, but what what would I write? What am I qualified to write? And that kind of kept me back some. I did a review for the uh, OC Weekly under a fake name of the Wrangler Brutes record. I trashed the Wrangler Brutes record. Um, Did that and got paid for it, which was nice. Although I think that just went straight into the band fund for some reason. I don't remember why. Yeah. Uh through that contact, I then got more music writing work, um, and not all the pieces were great, but there were a couple good pieces, and I definitely learned some very important things. Learned how to work with an editor, um, and then through that work, got work in other weeklies, because that's kind of a circuit. Orange County Weekly is owned by the company that owns Village Voice, and the LA Weekly Right. Uh, s- realized that that was something maybe I can do. Although even then, I was fuzzy on the concept of what I would do outside Music writing is kind of a punchline now, because clearly, clearly, if you read any of my music pieces, I'm not qualified to be a music writer in any possible way. I, I can't do it. But in that, I went, I got myself a, a ticket out to um, Detroit, and I did a long piece with Doc Dark, the frontman for the Crucifix, mm-hmm. uh, and did a uh, eight thousand word piece. Originally an eleven thousand word piece, and then it got trimmed down to eight thousand words spent a week um, out there interviewing him because he's had a really, really insane life. It was a really good story. um, And I knew that no one had gotten to that yet and really threw myself at that as as hard as I possibly could uh, and got a really good piece out of it. Tried, shopped that around to a lot of places, still didn't really know how to do that, didn't know how the mechanics of that would work. And so it just fell flat. Uh, I got a few rejections, most most magazines, I don't know. Who did I approach? Spin. <laughs> yeah. Magazines it wasn't appropriate for anyway. Just said, no, this isn't something we wanted. And uh, I had a I had a contact with Vice Magazine. They had contacted me years earlier. When I was in uh, Wrangler Roots, none of us liked Vice at all. Um, we were very dead set against that magazine. And so I'd sort of poo-pooed that contact. And I took a second look at it. And I thought, well, maybe this would be a good place for that piece, um, and I, I recontacted Jesse, uh, a friend of mine who was the editor at the time, and sold it there, and that was my entry really into doing what I'm trying to do now, which is journalistic pieces, long-form pieces, ones that I guess could be called human interest, not music pieces. Right. And so in doing that, then I've been able to, to branch out to other magazines. That was, I guess, my entry point into that world. Sure. Definitely wasn't something that I consciously set out to do, which seems strange to me now, but it's, it's like everything else in your past. You look back on it and you want to retrofit all these motives and thoughts. Um, I, I tried to do commercial writing for years. Commercial writing is, um, I'm looking at my two books right now, commercial writing. Commercial writing is, is just doing copywriting for other companies. And I set up my own copywriting company and all this is just writing press releases, doing text for websites. Um, I noticed more and more in the, the jobs that I had, both temp jobs full-time jobs, uh, part-time jobs, and all of these, uh, the boss and everyone else hated doing the writing. If they had to do a brochure, they just were cringing doing it. I said, well, I'll, I'll do it. That's nothing. You know, I'll knock that out uh, before lunch. It's, what, three paragraphs? Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone was baffled that it wasn't a problem for me and it, and it was a problem for them. So there is a world in that you can get paid a lot of money as a copywriter, um, and that's what I tried to do all through the mid aughties was, was get work as a copywriter, and I got no jobs. I had a zero percent return. I mailed up mailings, I did hundreds of cold calls. Uh, I just the other day threw out all my beautiful business cards. They' are embossed. Um, this beautiful logo <sighs> I made. And I just couldn't make it work, you know uh, And now that seems obvious to me that that would fail. but at the time, that seemed like a really rational way to go yeah
3: Um, i think the key word to use there is rational it's like i definitely find when it's like whatever artistic endeavor you're trying to put forth when you do put like this level of rational thought into like okay uh, i'm going to craft this in order to be a part of whatever it that is i'm trying to do whatever larger thing you're trying to accomplish that's usually when it's like those are the things that end up like such as your experience where it's like yeah it kind of falls flat where it just doesn't you can't get anything going because, you know, it might not come from the most, uh, you know, I guess, feel good places where it's just like, no, I'm, I'm doing this because I think this is what I probably should do because I have yeah. I have a proficiency with this. I think once you've done it once, you totally you learn from that process and you're like, OK, that's I hope so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you, I,
4: I hope I've been learning from my mistakes. I've <laughs> been a lot.
3: And so that, you know, that kind of brings us to where you're at now where it's like, you know, you, uh, you know, you released a book last year. That was your first uh, fiction work, correct?
4: Uh, first novel published. Novel
3: yeah. published, yeah. I've had a
4: couple short stories published.
3: And I, like, was combing through some of that, you know, I know in some of the interviews that you did around when the book was released and stuff like that, uh, one of the key elements that I pulled out that I wanted to talk to you about was the idea that a continued theme that I've noticed, obviously, in your work, not only in the book, but the stuff you've created prior to this, um, anger, you know, how you're focusing this rage into this character and it bleeds leads out into... Everything else you've done prior to that, never spoken to you before, but like, you know, there's no sense of rage I get during this. (laughs) There are elements of that are are evident throughout your work. Is that something that just continually informs you because you've been so well versed at it over the years?
4: No. uh, uh, So the book, uh, The Loom of Ruin, is about the angriest man in the world. I honestly didn't make any possible connection between that and the Born Against experience until well into the book tour. Um, (laughs) Right, right. There's a whole other novel I have before that one that has none of those elements in it, but that my first novel, the one that's not published, didn't work as a book it just it needs it needs something that's not there.
5: Mm. I think
4: it's a very common experience I'm finding more and more. there are a lot of people who get published who have that first book that just doesn't work and sits in a, a drawer somewhere so this one I just wanted to I wanted to write a really good solid novel that moved really fast and had a lot of yucks in it, and for some reason, that idea struck me it's I want to say kind of a coincidence. I wrote about the angriest man in the world and I was in this band that was one of the angrier bands of that era going well, well into caricature. Although certainly there were times in, in Born Against where we all made fun of the way we were perceived anyway. It wasn't a one a one direction caricature of angry people. Yeah, no, I don't think that's actually a, a theme in my work. I think it's just a bizarre, weird thing that happened timing wise in my writing right right life right. I say writing career I feel like a cheese bag whenever I say my writing career there's a couple of days ago I had to go back to the to drop our car off at the dealership because um, it had a, there was a recall thing on the steering wheel or whatever and uh-huh. so then they sent the shuttle a few hours later and then the shuttle came to my house and I drove back and there was this girl I mean she was a girl she was a teenager she probably barely barely had her driver's license and so it was me and her and she's she's driving back uh and it was really awkward not because i'm a middle-aged man and she's a teenage girl and maybe i like if i was a teenage girl i certainly wouldn't want to be trapped in <laughs> a van with a 44 year old I man it wasn't exactly that it was more or that i was old enough to be her dad like it like it wasn't that it was that she was so painfully earnest like she really you could tell she this job was new to her she was not a good driver um mm-hmm. every sentence ended with the word sir and so somehow in this really short, like two exits on the freeway, in this short drive, they came up like, "Oh, what do you do for a living, sir?" And I said, "Well, I'm a writer." And I thought that's a weird thing to say. That's awfully presumptuous of me to say that I'm a writer. But right. like, I didn't know anything else. They're like, oh, I'm, "I'm a writer," and she's like, "Oh, what do you write?" And she got really, really excited. Uh, I was like, "Well, I had uh, you know my first published novel came out last year," and she's like, "Oh my god!" Like I thought she'd hit something. Oh my god,
5: that's <laughs> yeah.
4: incredible. I thought, is like, is it? Have I? Am I jaded? Like, why? Like, it was really, really goddamn awkward. I didn't know what to say, and and all I could think when I got out of the van at the dealership, like totally flustered from this conversation, is like, I need to really. A, I need to work on my social skills still, but also be like I need to figure out some graceful way to talk about whatever it is I do, where I don't sound embarrassed or weirded out by it, which is still kind of the case.
3: Well, yeah, because you're because you're still in a similar experience. I always look at you know when you are traveling internationally, and obviously it asks your profession. And anytime you know, especially people that work in the creative fields. That aren't working for like some you know major corporation where it's easy to describe. You're just like, oh, I guess I'm a musician, but I feel like a fucking tool. Oh, yeah, yeah, right.
4: I've had that conversation. That's terrible. Yeah, yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. You feel like a tool because you're just like, well, no. I mean, I'm in a band, but that doesn't mean I'm like a musician. Like that, you yeah. know. That I, I I put people like you know Ingve Malmsteen as a musician. Like he's a musician. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, it, I think it's just a matter of like you trying on this new suit, and you're like, oh, I don't necessarily feel like this fits but like you said it's just a matter of you know kind of tailoring it then then you'll then you'll wear it and be like okay yeah i am a writer like this is me
4: there was a time uh maybe 10 years ago i learned a lot about the refrigeration industry so that if i was on a flight or somewhere else and a stranger asked me what my occupation was i could say oh i'm in refrigeration and then just tell them all about the refrigeration business and why they need to upgrade to such and such and oh well there's your problem that's got the old type of coils and here's what you want, da-da-da-da-da, and uh, that's I incredible. learned all this stuff. I never had it, and then, like, I was waiting for people to ask me, you know, and no one <laughs> ever asked, and then eventually it just, like, bruh, it just left my brain, and it's all it's all gone, and I'd have to start from scratch now.
3: Yeah, I, li- I like how that's a, that's a total social construct from you. You're like, oh, God, I can't wait to use this elevator pitch on somebody. Yeah. It's gonna I'm going to nail it. It's going to be great.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, would, I, had a lot, I had several flights where I would leave kind of, pissed off at the people next to me like what you don't care about me as a person what the hell's wrong with you
3: i'm a warm body sitting next to you i have feelings uh and sort of to to wrap things up with the kind of going back to what we were talking about initially in regards to obviously like you were saying that you know the 44 cent barrier of people that actually do want to communicate with you when you did have a more open form where it's like yeah you had you know Email published or whatever. Did you removing the obvious bullshit that came into your inbox? I'm sure. Um, were there people that ever uh, just because you have been you know prolific in various fields, were there people that kind of went to you for advice? Um, and you know, how did that, how did that kind of sit with you just because it's hard for people to kind of be like, oh, why are you asking me? Like, I don't, I didn't do this right. Like, why, why is this? But people perceive that because you're like, oh yeah, well, because I like your art. So I think you're successful.
4: I think most of the letters I got, no, I didn't get many that were advice ones. It would be very, very earnest ones, fan mail or, Mm -hmm. People wanting things. I'm doing this project. You need to be involved because X, Y, and Z. Um, I need you to do this. Uh, <laughs> I, here's, here's why you have to have my company, Dear Bansher. It's just uh, annoyance level stuff. I, I'm sure there have been some, um, but those things still... I, if somebody really wants actual... <clears throat> has something useful that they need advice-wise from me, they still have those... This 18-year-old young lady from England wrote me on Facebook... A while ago, I don't answer any of my Facebook mail because it's the same thing. But right. I kind of a couple months later, I, I found again, reread it, and I thought, "Oh, I actually should respond to this person. This is a very serious thing. Just wanting advice." It was a type of letter I wish I had written when I was eighteen. She just said, "I've read a bunch of your stuff. Um, I've read your blog. I've read your advice stuff. I would like to be a freelance writer." what do I do? I need your advice. And so it's at that point, it was, it kicked in that I had a responsibility to write a very cogent letter to this person. I also knew because she's 18, I was never going to get a response back. Like I was sending this out into the ether. Uh, the same way that when I was 18, I had people who helped me out and, and I was like, Oh, I got to write them back. And then, oops, you know, it's 10 years later and forgot to do that. Right. So I wrote, I, I compiled, I'd use it as an exercise to compile all of my advice on writing and freelance writing. Um, and then I just thought, well, I'll use this as a template. Someone else does this. Then I have, I have the basics of what I would write this person already written. And so I, I still occasionally get those. I used to get those when I had a public email address, but for every one of those, I'd get a hundred just bullshit. Mostly, honestly, most of the letters I got were just drunk. Um, a lot of people, it's like one of the emotions that comes out from intox- intoxication. You, you get really angry, or you get really maudlin, and also you really like Born Against. So I get a lot of drunk emails um, about Born Against, and that's kind of funny for the first couple ones, and then uh, just a waste of my time after that.
3: Yeah, yeah, you're like, all right, that's that's enough of that. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you hanging out, and I hope this was uh, a, a exercise in diversion for you. <laughs>
4: yeah, likewise, likewise.
3: So there you go. That is Sam McFeeters. Good dude, right? Like, I, I really like how he was trying to not be the old guy get off my lawn sort of. You know mentality, which he rightfully admits is something that he tries to continually not be. So anyways, propertyofzack.com, 100wordspodcast.com. You can also find a ton of Sam's work online. You can just Google his name and his website will pop up. He's written some great books and uh, obviously we talked about that in the interview, but check it out. I really do recommend all of the stuff that he does. So with that being said, be safe until next week and I will talk to you then. Thanks everybody.
2: The
5: the show is sponsored by BetterHelp.